0: I think,
1: KUCI KUCI ima, ki ite imas Lusterbed KUCI eighty point nine FM so KUCI. KUCI KUCI You're listening to eighty-eight point nine FM KUCI in row. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. And this is KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM and streaming live on the Internet at KUCI.org. Coming up in just a few moments, an elvish and hobbitish perspective on life with What Would Arwen Do? KCI in Irvine, the best radio station in the history of Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. and To all my elf friends, I am Tani Tenuviel, the resident resident KUCI Middle-Earth Elf. Welcome to What Would Arwen Do on every other Tuesday here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming live on the internet at KUCI.org. And in case it is your first time just tuning in, And you're wondering, what in the world is this all about? This is the show where I ask, we ask, if a Middle Earth elf lived today in Orange County, California, what would her life look like? How would she celebrate and support the arts, music, her community, and the preservation of Earth, its beauty, resources, and creatures? Some people ask, what would Jesus do? Which I think is a very good question. However, being an elf, I like to ask, what would Arwen do? What would an elf do? In Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, A Guide to Middle-Earth, Colin Durias wrote, in his invented mythology of Middle-Earth, Tolkien intended that his elves were an extended metaphor of a key aspect of human nature. This, quote, elven quality in human life was a central preoccupation of Tolkien's. Elves, like dwarves, hobbits, and the like, partially represent human beings. In Tolkien's mythology, elves represent what is high and noble in humans. In particular, they represent the arts in their highest form, work done in the image of God and his created world. So I believe this, quote, elven quality exists today in every living person and yearns for expression through gifts of creativity, nobility, and service to others. And Arwen, being an elf princess, the daughter of Elrond, Uh, would have been concerned about such things and would have surely understood the principle of noblesse oblige, that with great privilege comes responsibility. And here with me today is my Hobbit co-host, Milo Lomestown. Greetings, Milo.
0: Good afternoon, Tani. It's a beautiful shire day, a little overcast, though a little grayish.
1: Yes. Actually, we elves like days like this only because... Um, the 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 sun is uh, wonderful. Was created for vanquishing, in a sense, Morgoth and, and not allowing him to continue his reign of terror and darkness. However, the elves, being born in starlight and living most of their lives in twilight, the the sun is a bit of a harsh light, preferring starlight and moonlight. So, I actually like overcast days. <laughs>
0: And, of course, one of your favorite places in Middle-earth is the Grey Havens. Grey, Mm -hmm. again, a wonderful theme for the elves. But we hobbits, we hobbits like rivers and streams and fields. We like warm, bright sunshine so the crops can grow, Mm -hmm. especially our taters, our vegetables. (laughs) We love our taters and our vegetables and our mushrooms, which require dark, and that's a link between us and you elves.
1: Well, and the uh, hobbits and the elves both love the forests. So um, we both where, do. Where the forests are where the mushrooms grow, right?
0: Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so we have some wonderful things to talk about. Um, we will have an, some poetry today. We will talk about some cr- things going on uh, locally. We'll have a hobbit movie report, and um, we'll just talk about some things. I am intrigued uh, with the uh, vampires of the Twilight series. I know some people say, oh, those are just movies for teenagers. However, I really don't see them that way. I was first intrigued by this series. I I never was interested in the movies. It's kind of interesting. It's very similar to when the Lord of the Rings movies first came out and I missed the point of what they were. But a friend of mine mentioned to me about this one scene in Twilight where the vampire takes the girl and because of his special powers, he takes her up this tree and they can see over the entire valley. And she says, this can't be real. This doesn't happen. And he, you know, this isn't the real world. And he said, this is my world. And just such a, seemed like such a beautiful metaphor for how many of us are in the world in a different way, that the world is different sometimes, and I think at the time I was thinking also for about um, people who have like Down syndrome and that type of thing. They experience or blind, they experience the world in a different way than than you know a lot of us do. So I got the movie thinking, you know, I just want to see this scene, and began watching it, and I was very intrigued in. In fact, it reminded me very much of The Lord of the Rings in the sense that it had many archetypal figures. And um, we talked a little bit, and I was very amazed to find out that you had not, in fact, seen these movies, considering how many movies that you have seen.
0: Well, certainly, I've seen my share of... Of Dracula movies, Nosferatu, the great, brilliant German expressionist film, and then the remake by the, the director who made so many great films, Fitzcarraldo, Werner Herzog. And so I've seen a lot of vampire movies, but no, I, I did not. And I must say, the reason I didn't see it is not because it was theoretically for teenagers, because I really don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Good films may be targeted at children, which we'll talk about later, Mm -hmm. or teenagers, Mm -hmm. or adults, or old people. It doesn't matter. What matters is the film. However, because my time is not never-ending, like you elves who go on and on and on, (laughs) hobbits have a limited time on Middle Earth, and so I restrict my viewing to things that I believe based on, on indications that I have from friends and looking at. Just I don't I never read about a film before I see it, Tony. But just little indications where the first two films, Twilight and Twilight New Moon, were basically bad movies—just mm-hmm. just bad scripts and bad dialogue and, and and bad direction. Even though with apparently good music and and good cinematography, but but basically they were bad movies. And so that's the reason I haven't seen those yet.
1: Mm-hmm. And. I guess I'm, I feel very fortunate to not be a film critic <laughs> in the sense that I can, uh, just go and watch a film and I judge, my whole judgment on whether the movie is a good movie or a bad movie is whether or not I enjoy it. And generally for me, it is whether or not I bring something away from it that enriches my life which uh in this case it did and that's why there are movies that I've seen that people will say oh that movie was so awful for instance battlefield earth <clears throat> john travolta and
0: a truly horrible film but go on tony because you're making, very, you're making a very you're making a very valid and important point go but, ahead
1: but i loved the film because of its archetypal nature it was the hero who is oppressed there his people and his community is being threatened. The bullies are taking over. The bullies don't, it doesn't seem like the bullies are going to get theirs. And yet the bullies do. And, and it, and it really is about, uh, the common person rising to the occasion, being able to accomplish more than they think they can and overcoming evil. And th- and that's exactly what ha- and the and in that movie the bad guy John Travolta the bad guy is so bad it's like you just want him to get his due because he's so mean and cruel and um and and he does but it's also because the the people work together and 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 overcome evil and there's the love element and so um for me looking at it from the perspective of the script and the different aspects of it, I just I just judged it on the story. And I felt like when I watched Twilight, <clears throat> that was the thing that I enjoyed about it. It was about, to me, it was about um, people or, you know, creatures or people that are in the world that are very different and how other people respond to them and what it's like being different. And now I know, <clears throat> go ahead.
0: Yes, I wanted to, before we leave, John Travolta. You you <laughs> you hit on a very important element of film, which is I happen to be a lover of a very very well constructed film as an abstract plastic piece. Mm-hmm. But in fact, one can successfully argue, as I have engaged in debates with other film critics and other film fans, that important, as important as the plastic beauty of a film is the the emotions, the thoughts that you take away. And certainly, uh, I believe it's called Battleship Earth. Battle- Battlefield. Battlefield Earth. Did based. you watch it? Uh, I I watched a Did part of it. <laughs> I tried to watch it on DVD. As you know, the, the reviews were just horrendous. Right. But I have to admit, Tr- John Travolta, and maybe I'll revisit it now that you've recommended it. Maybe I'll force myself to watch the entire thing. John Travolta is brilliant in the film, as he is in many of his films. He's great. Yes, he's so
1: evil that you just, you know, it's like he he just is, you know, the epitome of of evil, careless, self, you know, indulgent guy that just uh, doesn't get it, you know, it's kind of like... It's very similar to me, even to Avatar, where the people that are, you know, going into in, uh, invade Avatar because they want this one thing and they don't really care about the trees and these, you know, people that they basically consider as just, you know, some right. other creatures of the forest. Well, in Battlefield Earth, that's the same way that John Travolta's character, you know, they look of it, It's kind of like a Planet of the Apes thing where, you know, they they're not they don't even realize that these people can talk.
0: And and really, we should not forget that it's. Its basis, its foundation is L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, which is a different faith tradition than ours, Mm -hmm. but who's to say it's an invalid faith tradition? Certainly it's done some good in the world, and not my faith tradition, but it's important to realize that the film is grounded on that faith tradition, Mm -hmm. and many notable people have uh, adopted that faith tradition as their own, including John Travolta, very famously, and Tom Cruise, so we should should not poo-poo it. But back to Twilight, I'm excited now to see it because one of my guidelines for seeing a movie is if it gets more than 50% on (laughs) RottenTomatoes.com, I regard it as something that maybe I could see it if my niece wants to go see it. Mm -hmm. So my plan next week is to take my niece to go see it. I know she's eager to, to see the new film, and And in fact, where the first two films were universally booed by the critics, as gauged by RottenTomatoes.com, and I just look at the meter, I don't read any details. Mm -hmm. But the meter is much, much, much higher on Mm -hmm. Twilight Eclipse, the new one that opens tonight at 12.01 a.m. Well, it's (laughs) actually tomorrow morning at 12.01 a.m., midnight tonight, just after midnight tonight, is when it opens around the country. People have been camped out for almost a week at yes. some movie theaters to see that opening screening, and based on this, I mean, it's it's something that uh, I will probably go see the third film in the theater.
1: Right, and um, <clears throat> were things different, I, I might have been out in those those camping out things. I, I camped out for uh, the Two Towers at the Newport Big Cinema. It was wonderful fun being in line with a bunch of other people that are crazy about the same things that you're crazy about, and doing geeky things and we were singing Lord of the Rings Christmas Carol.
0: (laughs) It's really the perfect place to see a film. For our listeners around the nation and around the world, there is a movie theater complex called The Big Newport here in Newport Beach in Orange County, California. And The Big Newport... One of its screens is truly a massive, massive, conventional, not IMAX, but a conventional, very, very large movie screen. And it's a wonderful place to see a big event movie like this mm-hmm. because people will stand in line for hours and they will talk about the things. And, and this happened for Raiders of the Lost Ark and the two mm-hmm. successor movies, Temple mm-hmm. of Doom and Last Crusade. Uh, And it's a very exciting environment. But really, the Twilight movies, like True Blood, the HBO TV series, which has the great actress Anna Pekin as Suki Stackhouse, they're about how the other, how people who are what you might call not normal, how they deal with the world.
1: And it was interesting, as an elf, I'm always looking for things that... Um, or I always just notice things that remind me of themes of Middle Earth and themes within the works of J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And I will have to say that in Seeing Twilight, one of the reasons also that it so appealed to me was a little bit of a correlation to the story of Arwen and Aragorn, <clears throat> in the sense that it Bella is so in love with Edward that she wants to forsake being a human in order to be a vampire to be with him. Whereas we see both with Luthien and Beren and also with um, Arwen and Aragorn that in order to be, in this case, being bound to a mortal, they had to give up their immortality as elves. Whereas Bella's case is a little switched, but she still is giving up her own people to become other. And uh, so I thought, oh, you know, this has the th- themes of our Aragorn and Arwen, <clears throat> and I wanted to just read a little bit because uh, from C.S. Lewis and about the power of myth. Because to me, this is really what it's about—the stories like this. I love archetypal stories. I love uh, stories of the hero's quest. Uh, the themes that are around us every day in life—you know, overcoming evil, overcoming, rising to the occasion of things, overcoming our own insecurities and fears. Uh, sorting out what is right, what is wrong, when to act, when to to keep our nose out of things. I think these are all archetypal themes, and that's what I love about movies like this, and especially Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia, and of course J. R. R. Tolkien in his um, his essays uh, on in Tree and Leaf on fairy stories, his defense of the fantasy for adults. And also uh, C.S. Lewis, and he had written actually a little bit of a commentary on the Lord of the Rings. And I wanted to just read this little excerpt from the C.S. Lewis Encyclopedia. And we
0: should mention that both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien were a member of a group of professors called the Inklings, which mm-hmm. discussed each other's writings and which really, the support of which, especially from C.S. Lewis, the support of the Inklings really furthered the Lord of the Rings. But C.S. Lewis has some very interesting words. Why don't you share those with us, Tani?
1: <clears throat> well, he says a couple of things here. <clears throat> Excuse me.
0: And the book you're reading from is?
1: Is the C.S. Lewis Encyclopedia, uh, edited by Colin Duriez, with uh, writings by, you know, commentary by him as well. It's just a wonderful, wonderful book. You can learn as almost as much about C.S. L- uh, about J.R. Tolkien this as you can, C.S. Lewis. But he talks about here in... Uh, in the imagination for C.S. Lewis is concerned with apprehending realities, even if they belong to the unseen world, rather than with grasping concepts. Imaginative invention is justifiable in its own right. It does not have the burden of carrying didactic truths. And This is why good works of imagination cannot be, be reduced to morals and lessons, although lessons can be derived from them, and the truer work, the greater lessons that can be drawn from it. In a review of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, Lewis noted that, quote, "...what shows that we are reading myth, not allegory, is that there are no pointers to a specifically theological or political or psychological application." A myth points for each reader to the realm he lives in most. It is a master key. Use it on what door you like. End quote. People may ask, why use fantasy to make a serious point? Because, Lewis answered, the writer wants, quote, to say that the real life of men is that of mythical and heroic quality. One can see the principle at work in Tolkien's characterization. Much that in a realistic work, would be done by character delineation, is here done simply by making the character an elf, a dwarf, or a hobbit. The imagined beings have their insides on the outside. They are visible souls, and man as a whole, man pitted against the universe, have we seen him at all till we see that he is like a hero in a fairy tale. The value of the myth is that it takes all things we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the, quote, veil of familiarity. The child enjoys his cold meat, otherwise dull to him, by pretending it is buffalo, just killed with his own bow and arrow. And the child is wise. The real meat comes back to him more savory for having been dipped in a story. You might say that only then is it the real meat. By putting bread, gold, horse, apple, or the very roads into a myth, we do not retreat from reality, we rediscover it. And that's the thing that I love about the works of J.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and even these, um, like Twilight and the X-Men. It takes uh, the veil of the familiar of the world away for a while and, uh, and makes me say, it, I think it just makes me kinder toward other people and realizing that the pa- our paths are also different.
0: That's exactly right, and and the different paths that people have is one of the reasons why Charlene Harris, I've seen interviews with her where she has said that's one of the reasons she wrote this Sookie Stackhouse novels, which have become created by Alan Ball into the tremendously beautifully photographed and great music soundtrack True Blood series on HBO, home, bo- home box office on, on cable television. Uh, Charlene is that a new Harris. series? It it actually it's now in its third year. Oh, it just started its third season. Wow! And Charlene Harris has, was questioned as to, you know, what the import and isn't it true that this is maybe about our society uh, not rejecting different people such as homosexuals, right? The gay folks, mm-hmm. and she said, yes, that's exactly right, and. She was afraid that her southern environment where she personally lives, that mm-hmm. her community would would reject her or ostracize her. And in fact, they understood what she was trying to do, that mm. the acceptance, maybe not the acceptance of tremendously other people, but the understanding of them and knowing that they have as much right to exist as you or I. So the the whole vampire mythology mm-hmm. certainly has a lot of deep resonances as does the heroic myths such as J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings.
1: And I know it may sound a little odd. I, one of the reasons that I feel an affinity for vampires is in my own personal experience as a vegetarian. I come from, um, ethnically, I'm hunter-gatherer, American Indian, uh, English-Irish, not so much a gregarian, uh, a, agrarian. Agrarian.
0: You're you're gregarious (laughs) and agrarian.
1: (laughs) Um, And so it's a challenge for me at times to get enough protein to really feel good and yet my love for the creatures of this planet and for the preservation of this planet through the freedom of us all um, I just need to be a vegetarian. I do at times eat some fish and I know it may sound odd but every time I do I feel like I know how vampires feel that they you know because and in Twilight they they actually have another source of food that they have at least this one group of vampires because they don't want to be killing humans so they get their their food source from other other creatures and I I know it sounds odd but that's I feel like sometimes I understand how vampires feel because I just can't get, you know, I, I don't do well if I don't have any protein for, for extended periods. So every once in a while, I just got to break down and have some fish.
0: <laughs> and it's interesting, in the Sookie Stackhouse novels and in True Blood, the series, it's named after an artificial blood mm. called True Blood, which oh. vampires have exposed themselves, and vampires have revealed themselves into our society in these novels. The vampires are among us, they're part of us, and people sort of, you know, reject them a lot, but some people say, well, they have a right to exist as well, and an artificial blood called true blood was created as a drink that they could have instead of blood from humans.
1: Wow. So it's it's actually kind of like a, an X-Men type of story, but just that vampires are kind of in the place of the mutants. And uh, it's interesting. I can't believe I've not even heard very, of
0: this. Very, very similar. In but it fact, was based on
1: novels. Is
0: novels it? by Charlene Harris. And the link between them, by the way, is the brilliant actress who plays the character Sookie Stackhouse is Anna Pekin, the great actress who won the Academy Award when she was very young and went on to do other roles, such as the Sookie Stackhouse character, as well as was Rogue in yes. the X-Men movies.
1: One of the major characters. One of my favorite characters, actually, in the X-Men Movies. So, very interesting. My goodness, how the time flies. I think um, we should have a little musical interlude. Yes. And then get back to um, some movie um, movie news on the Hobbit movie and some other things.
0: Oh, yes. Sounds so good.
1: What I was thinking, just to, for something a little dancey, about playing one of our favorites, Flaming Red Hair, the dance song from The Lord of the Rings, The uh, Fellowship of the Ring, The Complete Recordings. Just felt like something a little dancey.
0: That's very wonderful.
1: Here it is, the song that Sam and Rosie danced to in the Fellowship of the Ring. This is KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM, Orange County's alternative radio station. Mm And that is "Flaming Red Hair" from *The Fellowship of the Ring*, a complete recordings, Academy Award-winning music by Howard Shore. Yes. I never tired of hear. I never tired of hearing that song. I hope our listeners don't either.
0: Right, music, great music that not only is great in the context of the film, which I realized when I first saw them in two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three, but through you, Elf Princess, I've learned that they are. It is great music. They are great pieces by themselves, as we just heard.
1: Oh, yes. Well,
0: it's time for some Hobbit movie news, which we haven't had in a while. I want to begin by saying that there is a linkage from Twilight Eclipse, which we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. and we'll return to that uh, later. But Eclipse co-star Anna Kendrick Mm -hmm. wants to have a role in The Hobbit. She says, quote, I was and still am obsessed with Lord of the Rings. Mm. She, she told this to MTV.com. Well, it seems that H- cool. Kendrick, cool. Kendrick has Lord of the Rings fantasies for the Hobbit movie. Quote, believe me, I spend many nights wondering about that. This is officially my feeler. So she is trying to get a role in The Hobbit. So the reporter asked her if she would be up for playing Bilbo Baggins, <laughs> originally played by a man, Ian Holm. Of course, Bilbo is a male character. Mm-hmm. And the actress replies, well, Cate Blanchett did it, she laughed, referring to the actress's role in I'm Not There, where Cate Blanchett, the brilliant actress who plays Galadriel in The Lord of the Rings, but she actually played a man. She played Bob Dylan uh-huh. in that uh-huh. movie I'm Not There. But on to Hobbit movie news. As we know, we've heard that Guillermo del Toro Mm. was tired of waiting for MGM to resolve their financial problems. Right. And so we don't currently have a director committed. But this week came new news uh, reported in several places. I'm quoting from Guardian.co.uk, the the Guardian newspaper website in England. Mm -hmm. Peter Jackson is in talks to direct the Hobbit films. He's already credited as producer. It seems Jackson could be willing to take up the directing reins.
1: Mm, wouldn't Either, that be wonderful?
0: He's in talks with Warner Brothers about the possibility of doing this. As we've discussed on this program before, Tani, Warner Brothers has told their, their exhibitors that Warner Brothers will be exhibiting, will be distributing the first Hobbit film in December 2012. So they've sort of penciled that in pretty firmly. But the news for all the fans uh, where Peter Jackson's adaptation was so great to actually have him direct The Hobbit would be uh, a really wonderful thing. Now, apparently, most of the websites I visited, most of the news seems to be indicating that what he would do just to get the progress of the the continued making of these films going Mm -hmm. is to commit to directing the first one. Mm. So we might have a situation where Hobbit Part 1 is Mm. directed by Peter Jackson and Hobbit Part 2 is directed by a different person.
1: Now, won't they be filming both of these films at the same time like they did with the original trilogy? They're not going to, like, because they they kind of filmed it all straight through and then, of course, filled in different things, but just for the continuity, wouldn't, wouldn't they, in a sense...
0: That's that's a very, very good question. I wondered the same thing. For our listeners, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and Return of the King was a single, massive, long, 18-month production period of principal photography. The entire thing was basically filmed at once. Then post-production was done on The Fellowship of the Ring – and that was released. Then post-production was done on The Two Towers, and that was released. Then finally post-production was done on Return of the King, and that was released. So it's hard to understand exactly how this two-director thing could actually be practicable. It could be done. It depends on the unit production manager and how he or she lays out the actual shooting schedule. Mm -hmm. It's conceivable that it could be done that way. I, I was very entertained by a piece at Salon.com about, you know, who will direct The Hobbit. This is by Andrew O'Haher of Salon.com. He quotes Guillermo del Toro four years ago, four years ago when del Toro was at the Cannes Film Festival, and and someone asked him about The Hobbit, and, and Del Toro is quoted as saying, I don't like little guys and dragons, hairy feet and hobbits. I've never been into that at all. I don't like sword and sorcery. I hate all that stuff. Well, of course... Was
1: that before he did Pan's Labyrinth?
0: I think that was before Pan's yeah. Labyrinth, and in fact, uh, while Del Toro got his start as sort of a, a horror director, as Peter Jackson did, I think that the myth-making you know, won him over. But in Salon.com, they're talking about all the different kinds of people that could direct. There's Peter Jackson, of course, Alfonso Cuaron, right, a Mexican director, a brilliant guy. He did Children of Men. He also did what most people regard as the best Harry Potter, Potter movie. Mm. Uh, he proposes Bill Condon, who did Dream Girls and Gods and Monsters, mm. which seems like a strange choice to me. Chris Columbus, he's done Percy Jackson and the Olympians. He did the first... Uh, two Harry Potter films. Sam Mendes, which is a strange choice. He's a reality-based director. Hmm. Julie Tamer. Now, Julie Tamer is the great stage director who did Titus Andronicus with hmm. Anthony Hopkins so brilliantly, but she is one that created The Lion King on Broadway. Oh. And her ability with puppets, who else oh, do we know does puppets in yes. The Hobbit, right? Our our friend Henri Vienne of the Théâtre Saint-Phil, uh, as a possibility, Darren. Uh, so, there are these various possibilities that, that, uh, Andrew is proposing on salon.com. So, I urge our, our people to look for the, the article, Will Tarantino Direct The Hobbit? <laughs> on salon.com. It's a very entertaining, entertaining read.
1: And it's all, it's an interesting adventure as we move along this. It's, it's very interesting that. The project has been committed to, and certain elements of the project are firmly in place, and yet other aspects of the project are just in complete limbo.
0: I would say, based on my reading, that the, the framework, certainly the, the scripts for both films, Hobbit Part 1 Hobbit Part 2, those scripts are done. Right, they're ready to be produced, mm. and yes, a very, I- very large amount of the fundamental macro design has been done for the sets, costumes, and characters. We've 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 heard story of m- many books filled with sketches by Del Toro mm. in working with the original graphic artists of Lord of the Rings. So there's a lot of possibility there. So we continue to wait for the green light, as it's called in Hollywood, and very excited to see what will develop there. It would be remiss since we're talking about Lord of the Rings. One of the best actors in the Lord of the Rings was the character Gollum, played brilliantly by Andy Serkis. And let's not forget that he's coming out with uh, the... uh Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll movie, which he's oh, won really? the British Film Academy Award for, right, as Best Actor. He plays Ian Dury, one of the founders of the punk rock
1: movement. Oh.
0: And so he has uh, really, really expanded his abilities. And I believe when we see him as Gollum in The Hobbit, that we will. We will see an actor who has matured even more. He was he was great in Lord of the Rings, but I think we will see an additional depth, yes. which maybe wasn't there the first time.
1: Which I think we who have followed some of the other actors have seen that in so many of them, that, of course, um, uh, Aragorn Viggo Mortensen already had a strong acting career, but like The Hobbits, and even Elijah Wood, you know, not that much, not that much exposure. And now they've done, gone on to do other movies and series. And it's amazing just to see the the depth of their uh, maturing as as actors. Right. Which, which is Elijah
0: really Wood has really matured. Ian Holm, of course. The, Sir Ian McKellen, of course. They were already great actors. Kate Blanchett was just at the beginning of her arc of greatness when she played Galadriel. Mm-hmm. And she has shown since then amazing, she's just yes. an amazing, amazing actress with a very broad range. Mm-hmm. Elijah Wood has Im- improved just tremendously. Sean Bean has gone forward. And, of course, Billy Boyd, our, Billy Boyd, our Aragorn has done Eastern Promises, and it was like night and day. It was like two completely different actors, and yeah, and
1: that's what's amazing about Viggo Mortensen—the ability to just be bring a character to life and v- such different characters.
0: Right. In In Lord of the Rings, the heroic Strider, also mm-hmm. known as Aragorn, King to be, and in Eastern Promises, this horrible, evil, nasty. Slimy Russian gangster.
1: <laughs> I did not see that. I usually, I, I I'm a little.
0: It's hard to um, watch.
1: What what is the word? I'm not sentimental or something. I generally actors that I really love or love in roles. I just don't like to see them in films that that taints that for me. Um, what was the? There was one guy that I uh, Sutherland that I loved in the some of the um, Three Musketeers movies. And then he did this one movie where he played like this horrible, horrible, I think it was in a movie with Sally Field, where he was just an evil man that had, I think, killed her daughter or something and taunted her afterwards. And I just, I could not, I couldn't go see it, because I just wanted to think of him as one of the Three Musketeers. (laughs) (laughs) There you are. And, uh, and, but also Viggo Mortensen in Hidalgo, which was, uh, you know, he plays a little different kind of cowboy kind of, you know, horse riding guy,
0: right? And again, uh, an, again, a sort of a good character. I think we could agree, mm-hmm. basically. But, but a, bad in, uh, a bad guy in
1: a bad guy in that one with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, an, uh, about them, a perfect murder. Oh is, my uh, gosh! Yeah, he plays a role. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> but that's that is the mark of a good character, a good actor to be able to you know switch roles.
0: And and he is he is really really good at that, um, but back to vampires and werewolves. Since this mm-hmm. is tonight at twelve oh one a.m. Wednesday morning, which yes. is Tuesday midnight, we're going to see uh, Twilight Eclipse as the third film of that series, which has every promise of going on and on and on. Yes, <laughs> uh,
1: I believe there were four. There there are four. There are four books. So there there will be one more after that.
0: Uh, Of course, the Wikipedia has Werewolf and Vampire Middle-Earth entries, but also something interesting, glyphweb.com slash Arda, that's G-L-Y-P-H-W-E-B dot com slash A-R-D-A, is the Encyclopedia of Arda. And it has an entry for virtually every single character in The Silmarillion and The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and every other book that mm-hmm. Tolkien wrote, it's a very complete online encyclopedia of the Tolkien-created universes. And, you know, in in the Wikipedia, for mm-hmm. instance, vampire, we're talking about the term vampire used loosely, Wikipedia says, to designate a mysterious bat-like creature serving Morgoth and Sauron.
1: Mm-hmm. And there is reference, and, and this is why I think when the Twilight movies came out, because and really wouldn't have really thought too much about vampires, but there is mention of them. Not, I don't believe in the Lord of the Rings books, but in the Silmarillion.
0: That's right. And
1: in my favorite tale, of course, of Bryn and Luthien, which is the tale of the first elf princess uh, and um, coming together with Immortal, and Luthien being uh, not only the daughter of uh, Thingol, an elf lord, but also Melian, who was a Maya in Middle-earth. And um, we see, and of course, Sauron, who is in Lord of the Rings, and after, you know, he has, he's created the One Ring and is trying to enslave all of the free peoples of Middle-earth out of his hatred. <laughs> and, um, but... Back then, uh, Sauron had other shapes. He was not just the, a dark figure, and this actually uh, gives um, some backstory about Sauron in case people are kind of interested in not um, how he necessarily became uh, who he was and what caused his um, caused him to be corrupted, but just some things about about who he was. And it, it is where, where I first saw the mention of. Vampires and it's here is where um, Luthien is uh, striving in the pits in the pits of Sauron, uh, barin and Lay and of course, Felgen, uh, great king Felgen, uh died there out of his oath to help uh, the sons of Barahir, and there is just such a beautiful. Oh Why gosh.
0: don't you read some of this? We do have some time left. Why don't you? Read us a bit of the Silmarillion that talks about this, because as you point out, vampires and werewolves are very popular, especially yes. tonight. They're going to be very popular. However, they don't actually appear, to my knowledge, in Lord of the Rings.
1: Yes, well, and and it's also interesting too, because I think in Twilight there's also werewolves, and they're mentioned in here. So Huan is the Hound of valinor who has who is over in Middle Earth and and loves Beren and Luthien, and, and comes to their aid and has the prophecy regarding that only uh, uh, someone of greater might might be able to take his life. I believe
0: only the greatest wolf in history right. could take him down.
1: And um, it says here, let's see. Then Sauron sent Droglin, a dread beast, old in evil, lord and sire of the werewolves of Ingband. His might was great, and the battle of Huan and Droglin was long and fierce. Yet at at length, Droglin escaped, and fleeing back into the tower, he died before Sauron's feet. And as he died, he told his master, Huan is there. Now Sauron knew well, as did all in that land, the fate that was decreed for the Hound of Valinor. And it came into his thought that he himself would accomplish it. Therefore he took upon himself the form of a werewolf, and made himself the mightiest that had yet walked in the world. And he came forth to win the passage of the bridge. So great was the horror of his approach that Huan leapt aside. Then Sauron sprang upon Luthien, and she swooned before the menace of the fell spirit in his eyes and the foul vapor of his breath. But even as he came, falling, she cast a fold of her dark cloak before his eyes, and he stumbled, for a fleeting drowsiness came upon him. Then Huan sprang. There befell the battle of Hu. "'Huan and wolf Sauron, and the howls and baying echoed in the hills, "'and the watchers on the walls of Ered-Wethryn across the valley "'heard it afar and were dismayed. "'But no wizardry nor spell, neither fang nor venom nor devil's art "'nor beast strength could overthrow Huan of Valinor, "'and he took his foe by the throat and pinned him down. "'Then Sauron shifted shape from wolf to serpent "'and from monster to his own accustomed form.' but he could not elude the grip of Huan without forsaking his body of utterly. Ere his foul spirit left its dark house, Luthien came to him and said that he should be stripped of his raiment of flesh and his ghost be sent quaking back to Morgoth. And she said, There everlastingly thy naked self shall endure the torment of his scorn, pierced by his eyes, unless thou yield to me the mastery of thy tower. Then Sauron yielded himself, And Luthien took the mastery of the isle and all that was there, and Huan released him. And immediately he took the form of a vampire, great as a dark cloud across the moon, and he fled, dripping blood from his throat upon the trees, and came to Tar Nufuin and dwelt there, filling it with horror. Tremendous. Tremendous. Taking the form of a vampire. Yes. So, there we see it, right there in the Lord of the Rings, vampires and werewolves, (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> a- absolutely. And like in much literature, the writing of Tolkien has a purely, seems like, purely negativistic aspect to it, where the vampires and the werewolves are, are evil. And the interesting thing that Charlene Harris has done with the Sookie Stackhouse novels, and which the writer of the Twilight series of books has done, is to somehow try to redeem these and mm-hmm. say, there must be some basis in fact for these legends. Mm-hmm. The Legends are so pervasive through so many cultures around mm-hmm. the world, there must be some reality. And right. what is that reality? And if, it, if the reality is based in real beings, they could not ipso facto be entirely evil. There must have been some good and some bad. In the Sookie Stackhouse novels, there are good vampires and there are bad vampires. <laughs> And they're a vampire, but most of the vampires are have some good and some bad in them,
1: yes, well, and I think f- from my elf perspective, I always like to look at it from the perspective that there's every person has their story there's a different there's a perspective from every person's point of view. You may listen to someone who's sharing about how their marriage fell apart and how the husband was a jerk or how the wife was unfaithful or whatever, but those people also had their story and their path, and that's what I like. Like, even the the series Wicked, where you get the story of the Wicked Witch of the West, and I'm always interested in, well, what was their story? How did they get it? Which is one of the reasons why I love um, the Star Wars, where we actually get to see how Darth Vader became Darth Vader, and of course at the end he is uh, redeemed, um, but w- at least for me, especially in number three, we see how through lies and deception, someone can turn to the dark side, and and why that can can happen. Someday. Right,
0: and that is not that we're
1: not responsible for our choices, but we can. I can right. understand why sometimes people make right. the choices that they do, right. and sometimes it's because they've been lied to or deceived or or oppressed, and you know. Enslaved themselves.
0: That's one of the great things about the Star Wars series. In six films, George Lucas laid out the path of downfall and the path of redemption, the path of sin and redemption, you might say. And Anakin Skywalker, certainly he's lied to, certainly he's misled by Darth Maul and the other Darth,
1: the Emperor, Darth the, Sith
0: lords, yeah. the, the Emperor. However, he makes a choice Mm -hmm. at, at one point to not believe the best, to not hope the best. And therein lies his downfall. And then finally, he sees the error of his ways and redeems himself. And although the last three films produced, which are chapters one, two, and three of the story, many people would argue are very poorly directed you cannot argue with the brilliance of the screenplays. They right. are just just brilliant stories and very very well acted by Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, she's so good as yes. the, as the Queen Amidala. And all the actors and actresses.
1: And we see, I think, you know, in, in as in Lord of the Rings, we see the downfall of Boromir, you know, who was a valiant character, but was, you know, misled by his own desire to want to, f- you know, free his land, but thinking that he could do so by trying to, you know, take the ring and, uh, you know, incept.
0: He thought that by force mm-hmm. he could win the war, by force yeah. he, could, he could turn away the dark. Side of the Earth, but in fact you couldn't do that.
1: And so we are to the end of our time.
0: <laughs> it's unbelievable. And I have so, so much more to discuss. And so we have to ask
1: the question. You know, here are the Twilight movies, and what would Arwen do? Well, Arwen is probably going to go see the movies. I actually have not seen uh, New uh, New Moon yet. I've I am. Uh, very much suffering from a lack of cinema therapy uh, the last few <laughs> few months. So I have checked it out from the movie, and I'm going to see it. But uh, I will look forward to, to seeing the continued story and hopefully the improvement.
0: Well, basically, because one of my nieces is a fan of these movies, I will take her to see the third episode. It'll be the first one for me, but it's the third one, the one that opens tonight. I'll probably see it next week. And then two weeks from today when you and I next come on to the airwaves here at KUCI.org, streaming 24 by 7. <laughs> Our podcasts are available at KUCITalk.org, or you can go to iTunes and search for Arwen, A-R-W-E-N, and what would Arwen do is on podcasts on iTunes. I will have a trip report, and you will have a trip report, yes. on Twilight eclipse.
1: Absolutely. So until then, we will say to our friends, Salalumin amenti A star shines on the hour of our meeting. So we laid, and we will leave. Uh, I think I'll. I'll oh, one let's, let's more close, thing. Close with some Hobbit music. Yes. We
0: will have more in two weeks. But go see Toy Story three. Oh yes. Beautiful, amazing Toy Story three. But and that's there. all I'll say right now.
1: Okay, wonderful. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about that, because I haven't had a chance to see it either. More mythic elements.
0: More <laughs> mythic elements. The, the
1: archetypal journey.
0: The unseen.
1: Yes. <laughs> okay, thank you, my my dear Hobbit friend. And uh, stay tuned for Blueberry blueberry another, Literature. It's,
0: another fabulous program I, here on KUCL. Yeah, it is a fabulous
1: Irvine. program.